When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is this what you call democracy? They're killing us and you're killing me. Now I know better, now I can see that I don't want to be in democracy. Now is the time for us to strike. We are seeing a wave of labor action across the country in the midst of this pandemic. Yesterday, workers for the grocery delivery app Instacart held a one-day strike demanding hazard pay and access to protective equipment. Today, employees from the grocer Whole Foods did a sick out. We've also seen labor action by sanitation workers who walked off the job demanding protective equipment and hazard pay as well. And at Amazon, which has seen its sales soar, not surprisingly, is now hiring 100,000 new warehouse and delivery people as a result Workers across the country have said the conditions inside the warehouses are unsafe. Hello, this is Failed State Update, Episode 2, and uh, I am Joseph L. Flatley, a.k.a. Lenny. That's what my family and friends call me. It is true that uh, we have an economic crisis being created by everybody losing their jobs, and it's also clear that we have a medical crisis caused by this uh, disease we have no immunity to. But more importantly, we have a political crisis. There's no reason that we couldn't have uh, started bracing for this, started preparing a response to the COVID-19 in February of this year, instead of waiting months and wasting valuable time. And there's no reason that Jeff Bezos can't just pay his taxes and the government can't just give everybody a paycheck to wait this thing out. Food medicine, medical care, all that is within our reach as a country. There's there's no way we can't couldn't do it if we if we really wanted to. So for this episode, episode number 2 of the Failed State Update, we're going to begin by talking to Chris Smalls, the former Amazon employee and current organizer who is uh really at the forefront of this fight to protect the lives of uh, working people and the communities that they support. I've worked off and on for Amazon for a couple years. And, uh, you know, it was a good job. It wasn't my main job. But when I saw this coming, I was actually supposed to go back into the sortation facility in March. And when I saw this coming, I just felt like, you know, Amazon is not going to take care of people. Uh-uh. You know, I just, you know, I didn't know. I didn't have proof, but I just felt, you know, I'm going to be, there's no way I could do my job in social distance. Oh, absolutely not. No. So I'm very curious just to hear your story and kind of how you ended up becoming kind of the leader of this movement. Man, how? Um, well, in the beginning of March. Um, that's when I noticed some of my employees, my colleagues around me, um, they begin to fall ill. Um, they were flu like symptoms. They were called not to work because they were, um, dizzy. They were fatigued. Some of my employees were vomiting at their workstations. Um, some of them couldn't, uh, finish their 10 hour work shift. Um, and it was very alarming. We had no facial masks. We had no PPE provided, um, as far as the the gloves that we need to protect our hands, our skin, um, there were no cleaning supplies. It was very scarce in the building as far as cleaning supplies. And um, at the time, it was it was still business as usual. We were still throwing parties, um, not social distancing. Um, we had a party with a DJ, popcorn machine, candy, you name it, we had it there. Um, this was the middle of March. Um, this pandemic was very much in the States already, and I was very concerned. So that's when I started to raise my concerns to the, the higher-ups. And um, they were very nonchalant about it. They, they 
swept me under the rug. They, uh, you know, was like, you know, business as usual because at the time we didn't have any confirmed cases. So, yeah, that's what forced me to take further action. You know, I sat in the building. I came to the building after sending home my my colleague who tested positive. I sat in the building for eight hours a day off the clock telling the employees the truth, that they possibly been exposed to somebody who tested positive. And I was talking about my colleague and um, other employees that management had told us not to tell the employees. And um, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in agreement and alliance with that. So, uh on March 30th, that's when I held the walkout that resulted to my termination. So you were going into work every day, not clocking in, but just hanging out in the break room or whatever and informing the your fellow workers what was happening. Yep, absolutely. I sat in the break room every single day from 7 o'clock to about 4.30 in the afternoon every day, um, mobilizing, not mobilizing, but you could say having an open dialogue with the employees, telling them the truth, actually marching them into the general manager's office uh, every morning at nine o'clock to voice our concerns to get the building closed down. We did that every single day that week. And then on Saturday, I guess they got tired of me doing it. They decided to quarantine me. Um, That was the last day of the week for us. And um, they already knew that I not only was I exposed, but all the employees in my department was exposed. Um, and they only decided to quarantine me, not even the person that I ride to work with every single day. Were people getting sick and not getting diagnosed because of lack of testing? Absolutely. There's a number of ways they were getting people. Number one, we could all be asymptomatic. There's a lot of young adults that work there. Number two, um, yeah, good luck trying to get a test in the state of New York right now. It's the Epic Center. Um, you know, we got to think about that. New York, New Jersey is an epic center. Um, it's very hard to even get a test. And number three, their policy um, for Amazon is you don't get officially quarantined until they receive physical documentation from um, the doctors, which can take a number of days or weeks. So uh, all this time going by, you're possibly working hand in hand or next to somebody or running into somebody who possibly is carrying the virus. Um, so... It just doesn't make any sense to me why um, any building that has a case will remain open because you don't you can't stop the spread once it's inside these type of buildings. How was the uh, how was Amazon's business? Did you notice like an uptick in sales or more packages coming through? Or no, I mean I didn't notice. Actually, I, I noticed the complete opposite. So um, I don't. I mean, facility centers that we work in are not. The, uh, the Amazon grocery uh, distribution centers. It's not the Amazon Fresh. They might be uh, seeing more work than we do. We don't sell as much essential items that people think that we do at fulfillment centers. We just don't. It doesn't carry any type of cold or refrigerated uh, products. Um, it only has really canned food, dry foods, um, and, and the rest would be like, you know, candy or junk food or anything like that. It doesn't have... Um, all the necessary things that you would go to your local grocery store for. It doesn't have that. Um, we sell more electronics and small items. Um, and obviously sex toys, uh, that's, that's what Amazon makes his money off of. Um, it ain't no secret about that. You know, that's what we still sell till this day. They, they didn't narrow down the inventory to make it just essential items. They didn't do none of that. They're still making it. The reason why they're making the killing is because they selling what they want to sell, you know, that's why Jeff Bezos is making, um, you know, all these billions of dollars because he's selling what he want to sell. They're still selling the Amazon-owned products, um, which is the the Fire Sticks, the Echoes, and all of that stuff. So yeah, um, this company lies about a lot of things and they they sugarcoat everything. But us employees, we know the truth. Um, we know the reality of the situation. Yeah. So so tell me about the walkout. What date was that? March 30th. March 30th. And um, you were, you had been sent home. They had said that since you had been exposed to someone with coronavirus, that you were supposed to be quarantined. Um, Were anybody else who had been exposed to that employee quarantined? No, no, Um, no, absolutely not. They quarantined me on Saturday, the last day, two days before March 30th, because like I said, I've been there the entire week. They knew about it. They knew I was there. 
Um, the same, the day that she tested her results came back in, she texted me, she, we're friends. I told them myself that I was exposed to her for, for five minutes. Um, um, but they told me, well, they'll let you know well, when you want to be quarantined. I was like, well, I'm telling you right now that I need to be quarantined. But they told me, no, don't worry about it. Um, we'll, we'll give you a call. I said, uh, okay, that makes sense. But it really didn't make sense to me. Um, uh, they didn't tell none of the employees that was around her for 10 hours a day for multiple days in a row. And like I said, they didn't even quarantine the person I ride to work with every single day. So what did I tell everybody? You know, they just wanted me to be quarantined to silence me. And um, what were the demands of the walkout? To build, have the building closed down and sanitized. That's all we wanted. The building in Queens, New York did it. That's what Staten Island wanted, the same thing. Uh, Queens, New York, they had one case. They closed down the building. They sanitized it. Everybody came back to work the next day. We wanted the same exact thing. Um, they refused. Why were you guys not getting closed down? Because they claimed that the associate that tested positive wasn't on the premises at the time. Uh, didn't make sense to me. I'm like, so what? He he was here. You know, he possibly could expose, spread it to other associates, which he did, um, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, it didn't make sense to me. They said that he wasn't on the premises at the time when they got the results back in. And the difference is, the difference is Queens, New York, the person was on the premises when they got the results. Now we know, and I think we knew then, that if you get sick or, you know, if you test positive, you've probably been walking around. You could have been walking around for a week getting everybody else right. sick. Right, yeah, we all know that. You know, we, we we know the common sense behind it, but apparently the company doesn't get it. You know, they have their own... I don't know who the heck these people are, but I, they, they, I, I, apparently they have some medical expertise that we don't know because I told them the same thing. Like, we don't know how long this person had it. We don't know where he got it from. But you're telling me there's no reason to close down the building. That doesn't make sense to me. Now they have, you know, abundance of cases. They have over, over 50, 60 cases in that building because you can't stop the spread. Um, when I first started, when I started raising concerns, it was only about two or three cases. Now you're talking about 50, 60 cases in there. And this has only been a matter of a month, not even less than a month. So that's a pretty big, I mean, 50, 60 cases. That, that, could, that has the potential to really spread very quickly. It's already has, you know, and it's probably more than that. Um, th this is just the cases that we, we know of. Um, the company is lying about that as well, you know. They already said it on... CNN the other day with Jay Carney, he said he doesn't have the number, but, you know, that's just a bunch of lies because this company has ran nothing. Amazon is ran strictly off of metrics. Um, everything they do, everything they do is ran off of numbers, everything. Um, they have the numbers. They know how many people are affected in their, in their, uh, their, their network, but uh, they're not going to release it because it's so high that it will be shocking to the world if they – actually release how many people are infected and i know that they know that but um you know their day is coming alex chalakian founder ceo of lake avenue financial what are your thoughts alex here on what was just a darling and that is amazon and they what hired one hundred seventy-five thousand people i don't know what are they up to these days well, as you just pointed out, Nicole, Amazon is one of the only companies that is hiring right now. Uh, I'm anticipating some great earnings coming out from them. They've been hitting on all cylinders. And as we spoke about this last month, this uh, coronavirus has done nothing but help with the Amazonification of the world. People are ordering their supplies, ordering their goods, ordering whatever they possibly can through Amazon to feel safer, not have to leave the house. And it's definitely helped with that. Uh, so we're excited to see what's going on with Amazon. And we just continue to expect higher and higher earnings here. So it's a 2409, Alex. Do you think uh, this stock is heading higher in six months, 12 months? And then, you know, speaking of the the numbers, the metrics, I, you know, I noticed that the first time my first shift in the, the sort center, it was like, you couldn't even pick up a box without somebody coming down and telling you, you know, you know, are you popped up on our computer? You're not walking fast enough or something. Right. 
Right, right. I mean, it's absurd to me that they wouldn't be able to crunch the numbers and figure this out. And then the news just came out recently about how they're using, you know, heat maps and metrics to determine which stores, which locations are in danger of unionizing. Right. They have metrics for everything. So, you know, that's the that's the funny thing is you got metrics for everything, but you don't have metrics for how many cases you got in these buildings. It's bogus. And, and we all we all should just catch on like Amazon is full of it. And um, the truth will come out. Whatever they do in the dark will come to the light, you know, um, and it's starting to unravel now. You know, I started a revolution and um, we just had another walkout. What, two days ago, last night, I believe, in Minneapolis. So, um they have a lot of, you know, explaining to do, and they should be held accountable. And how many people walked out on March 30th? Um, about 50 to 60 people. Okay. And then and then, what was the management's response? <laughs> that it was only 15. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they that's what they, their PR, they, they called every newspaper that, you know, released something different because, you know, they, they want to make sure that it, it's not, um, bigger than what it was, but uh, it absolutely was. Um, people that the, the news outlets that were there uh, can dispute that. Um, the people that were there can dispute that. Um, even the simple fact that other buildings been walking out afterwards, uh, you know, they they sugarcoated them as well. You know, all they do is every time another protest happened. Um, they're quick to jump the gun on PR. You know, that's what they do. They've been spending millions of dollars on PR and safety guide- safety guidelines because of my actions. You know, there's no other way around it. And it shouldn't have happened that way, but that's just the reality of the situation. So you were fired after, you were let go after that, but they claim, they said it wasn't because you were organizing. Right. They say that about everybody. Um, they fired about eight people since, and... You're telling me that all eight of us is being is, is insubordinate out of out of nowhere, right? Um, no, it doesn't make sense. You know, somebody like uh, the the two young ladies that were were fired in Seattle, they've been with the company 13 years. Um, you're telling me all of a sudden they want to be insubordinate? No, it's because we're we're putting our our people in danger, and we're raising concerns. Uh, it wasn't because it, you know, they violated they decide to violate the internal policies. Like, um, we're doing it for a reason. You know, the, the reason is we're not protected and we're not safe. Um, I've been with the company since 2015. I know the rules inside and out. Why would I purposely violate rules if I knew, um, if I, if I knew that we're going to get me terminated? Um, that's not, that wasn't the case. I did something because the company failed to, uh, protect us. And that's why, you know, I have no regrets about what I did. What are you hearing from other um, people around the country, other activists that are trying to hold Amazon accountable? Same thing. Uh, we all supportive of one another. You know, we communicate. I talk to them um, all the time. You know, people call, email me all the time, every day from all over the world. Um, what I did was put put Amazon on notice and now the voices that were afraid to speak up are starting to speak up. Um, and those that, um, that want to take action are starting to take action. And that's what we're going to continue to see, um, until the company finally responds in a way that's suitable for the employees right now. Um, it's still not, you know, all the stuff that they putting out there, all the things they implemented is all reactive. It's, it's not like they have done it, uh, for the entire time or duration of the pandemic. No, this all happened after they terminated me, which was March. I know we're already um, at the end of April and um, the virus already been around for a few months. So everybody that's already uh, contracted the virus for this company is continue to spread it. If they are continuing to go to work or, you know, the company has to realize that you can't stop the spread of this virus. You know, once you, once you, once you, uh, contract this virus and you go to work every day and you're possibly spreading it to your, your coworkers. Um, it's not the building that holds the virus. It's now the people, you know? So the only way you can stop the spread is by shutting it down and separating the people. You have to keep everybody quarantined away from each other for at least a minimum of two weeks. And I would say even longer at this time, because like I said, 
Um, just three weeks ago, we had only a few cases. Now we're up to 70. Some of these buildings got 90 cases, 80 cases. And we have all the, we have all the text messages. Um, the company started sending out text messages after I exposed them on national TV about how they weren't being transparent about the number of cases. That same night is when they started to uh, send out text messages, mass text messages to all the employees in bulk of how many cases uh, these buildings got. Um, since then, uh, it's been like every day we get a text, every single day, even today. 5.30 in the morning, we can give you the exact time. We get another text saying we have additional cases in, this, in the building. Um, that is ridiculous, and that's, that's scary to me, you know, that we're going to receive text messages every single day saying they don't even give out the number anymore. So what they do is, and originally they were giving out the number. They'd be like, hey, you got, there's been three confirmed cases over the past weekend, da-da-da-da-da. Now they're just saying we have additional <laughs> they don't give out a number. So we caught on to it. We've been hip. And um, I have a team that's been put together to uh, calculate and, and put everything on data, uh, all the cases for all the buildings all across the Amazon network. So um, we will be releasing that um, sometime this week um, to give that. Yep. So Jay Carney will have his answer since he don't have it. I have it. It's just – insane to me that this business is still up and running when people are just getting like you said sex toys and kindle <laughs> yeah you know yeah and and people have died people have died already we we just had another death uh last night somebody died at JFK a former, a former employee of JFK yes so how many do you have a number of how many people have passed away it's been a roughly about four. I think it's, I, I want to say about four or five people. And that's within Amazon and Whole Foods, which is owned by Amazon. Um, there's been at least four or five deaths already uh, related to COVID-19. If people want to help out or spread the word, like how should they get in touch? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, shut underscore down Amazon, or Instagram, chris.smalls underscore um, I try to be very accessible. You know, I have my email address up there as well. Um, just send me an email, and um, I will definitely get back to you. If not, somebody from my team will definitely get back to you. Um, there's plenty of people um, that I have that I'm working with that will uh, forward, you know, contact information to me um, if, if, if needed to. So, um, yeah, just continue to uh, support whatever I post is really um, I try to keep it uh, updated day to day, uh, hour by hour. I try to update it and keep keep in communication with people. You know, I've had a number of jobs over the years, all different kind of work environments, and it's really hard for people. I think it takes some courage or some leadership to stand up. Um, I mean, just the thought of going into work every day, not clocking in, and you know, make, informing people of what's happening in opposition to what management would have you do you know it, it takes takes some guts and real leadership and um thank you for that i really uh, applaud you. you for that thank you i appreciate that absolutely Just uh, got off the phone with uh, Chris Smalls, the uh, Amazon guy, Amazon protester. I mean, it was pretty insane. What I didn't realize was that, like, one of his employees, he was a manager, one of his employees, or some sort of supervisor, one of his employees got sick. So every day he'd come in for his shift, he wouldn't clock in, 
and he would hang out in the break room and tell every like keep tabs on like <laughs> the, the situation and tell everybody what's going on. You know, it's like I'm like, how did that detail get lost in the coverage? Because that is crazy. Yeah, I haven't heard that at all. So basically, he turned into a self-appointed hall monitor and just that's awesome. And I mean, you know, it's an important detail, by the way, like yeah. crucial. Yeah, yeah, and and you know when they ended up firing him, what they said is because they, you know, so this woman that he sent home, they ended up saying, well, you know, she has COVID nineteen, so you're going to have to quarantine yourself. But like, they didn't tell any of the people that she'd been working with, like day in day out. Like he spoke with her for five minutes, and they told him that you know obviously to get rid of him, but they didn't tell anybody else. And then so when he came back for the. Uh, for the protest, they were like, "Up, oh, violating quarantine, <laughs> you're fired." It's like, wow, that's like evil corporation shit right there. Well, and you know, it's just a more justification for what's coming, which is the complete automization of their of their delivery system. So, you know, I'm it's human beings are getting in the way at this point. You know, it's. So, I mean, I feel for people who work for Amazon because it's kind of the only gig in town in a lot of places, and at least it's a steady income or had been, but they kind of have you over a barrel in this labor market. They have everybody over a barrel. Oh, absolutely. I, um, I've been going off and on to like Uber and, you know, even working in the Amazon sort center right by my house here just to like supplement my income and, um. It's crazy. Everything's a metric. It, you know, it's like it's obvious first of all that people are only working there cuz it's like the last things that they can't do with robots. Like, you know, it's like no matter how they they push so many packages through the the chute that they have to have somebody standing there with a stick to like pry them loose if they get stuck. It's like <laughs> like that was my job once just hanging out staring at packages and then like poking them with a big stick. So- if, so you're basically an uh, you're an industrial laxative, <laughs> exactly. And it's like they're going to figure out, you know, the um, they're going to figure out the, that shoot sooner or later, and I'm going to be out of a job. So, oh my God, you were you were in charge of keeping the Amazon poop shoot going. Yeah, it was ridiculous. <laughs> and it was like you'd be standing there, and then you'd hear like a buzz, and you'd have to like know which one of like because you're like in the center, and there's like all these different there's like i think there were like eight different lines where people were taking packages and putting them on pallets to throw in the back of the truck to ship so it's like all the trucks would pull in the one end somebody would throw all the packages off the trucks into these conveyors and then they would go to a central spot and then they would be split into eight different lanes or whatever and then sent so it was like people you know, super fast paced, like grabbing packages, looking at the letter on it and then throwing it down in the specific chute. And then I'd be standing there with a stick and then like something would buzz. And somehow in all this chaos, I'd have to figure out which chute was the one that was stuck. And then I'd have to like run over there. And it was, uh, it was, it was lame. But like what I did learn from that experience was that, I mean, everything, Amazon is all about metrics and like, Everything you do has a number. They know if you're like moving too slowly, you know, if you're not carrying enough packages. And it was just so, you know, it, it, it was like Brazil. Do you wake from your finest fantasy only to return to your daily nightmare? Until this all blows over, just stay away from me. Brazil, it's only a state of mind. We're all in it together, kid. But just to think of all these facilities, like, all over the country, and they're all, you know, uh, disease vectors at this point. Well, and also uh, canaries in the coal mine, kind of showing the way forward for for the next layer of of surveillance capitalism where we're being monitored and all your be- your behavioral surplus is actually their um, algorithmic, you know, 
the, the metrics that feed their algorithm that maximize profits because on the scale that they're operating on, you know, if you can make up 10 cents on Lenny in one day, that that's all part of the building the, the profit. So, cause there are, there are hundreds of thousands of Lenny's in the system. So, uh, the other th- interesting thing to me is that, you know, you monitoring the poop shoot with a stick just goes to show in a way it, it's a, it's, um, by it's sort of a reverse proposition standing on its head, how automation really is key because, the only reason why it's not being auto- that's not being automated right now because they could put a sensor in the chute and they could come up with a easily a mechanical device that could unclog it right i mean that's not you it's not that it's not possible it's that it's actually just cheaper because of the because of human labor to do it that way so so the only thing that's really standing in the way of the automation is not the technology anymore the technology is not the issue it's the fact that they've that the labor market's been driven to a point at which it actually has to be competitive with automation. And the only way for it to be competitive is to drive down the wages of the worker below and keep it there. You know, that's, I don't know, it's, this is stuff that I, this is like, these are little bugs up my ass and I don't have a little man with a stick unclogging them so they back up in my brain, but <laughs> you want to, you want to, or intro or I'm, I'm gonna record an intro later so okay well i'm jp satilli and i am i guess ostensibly the the news vandal and what is the news vandal the news vandal it's a website i came up with it years ago actually when i was working in the mainstream media and i was writing surreptitiously what i used to do is take news articles out of the post or the times or you know, wall street journal I take them off the internet and then I would vandalize them. I would go in between the lines and write what is actually being said, but not really being said by the reporting in the paragraphs. And that was the beginning of news vandalism. And then it turned into this idea of taking headlines and pasting them together so that you could take the stories that were being put churned out by the by the news media, by journalism and newspapers and and blogs and opinion sites and political magazines and everything, just take their headlines and stitch them together so that they would tell what I call a meta story, a larger story. So when you get the rundown, a lot of people get the rundown, see it for the first time, and they go, oh, man, I can't handle that. I mean, you want me to read 60 stories? You have 60 links here. And that's not the idea, and I've tried to explain it as much as I possibly can Really, the idea is you just read the headlines in order, and that'll give you um, – you'll be better informed if you read the headlines in order from start to finish than almost anybody you see on television reading headlines to you. And you know, I, I don't change the headlines ever, and I have the, uh, the naked URL below so you can see exactly the source, uh, how they – constructed the url themselves because sometimes the headline in the u that's written into the url is different than the headline they have online and it's different than the headline that i use because sometimes people will i'll get a headline i'll pull it at 4 30 in the morning and then by noon that headlines change two times because they're going back and and making adjustments based on the facts often i think the, that the headline that they had was not seo optimized and it was not getting a lot of clicks so they sometimes they sex up the the headline to attract more but so that's that so you know i worked for a news aggregation site that will remain nameless and i had a kind of a falling out with them because of the way they were doing things this was a decade ago and that's when i decided to put out the news vandal rundown uh, as a daily proposition well five days a week because i can't do it on the weekends i have to have some time to to unplug because it's you know, when I was doing it during the Obama administration, I could churn out a rundown in the morning. I'd get up at six. I'd have it out in, a, in maybe two hours, and then I could write. I was playing a lot of basketball. I was living a full life, and then Trump came down the escalator, and I haven't seen my life since.
to be at Trump Tower. It's great to be in a wonderful city, New York. And it's an honor to have everybody here. This is beyond anybody's expectations. There's been no crowd like this. And I can tell you, some of the candidates they went in, they didn't know the air conditioner didn't work. They sweated like dogs. They didn't know the room was too big because they didn't have anybody there. How are they going to beat ISIS? I don't think it's going to happen. When Trump came down the the escalator, I'm talking, you know, I'm mixing my stuff here. There's print and broadcast are different, but they're often intertwined as well. You know, CNN was in deep trouble. MSNBC was, there was actually the industry talk about MSNBC was they were going to go, go through a wholesale format change. You know, I mean, it looked like it was because MSE, MSNBC's average day rating was around 380,000 people. CNN was between 480 and 550. Five, 480 and 550, that's 480,000, 550,000. And Fox was the big winner with about 1.1 million. And that was the peak with uh, you know, Bill O'Reilly sort of skewing the average day ratings. So that's less than 2 million people watching cable news. And when Trump came down the escalator, that all exploded. And the reason why MSNBC and, and CNN, we, you could, there are political reasons why Fox would do it, but Fox was doing it for the same reason. Donald Trump's rallies five or six times a week, you just ran them live, you, you just, and you spiked your ratings. And what did you do? You spiked your profits. And so there's spiked profitability in that. And, and I think that that created kind of a, a race to cover Everybody wanted to get in. Everybody wanted to be a part. Everybody had a snarky take, and it happened on. It happened in broadcast, happened in cable, and it happened online as well. And the the zone got flooded with even more content because everybody was racing to get a piece of that Trump pie. Yeah, and you know, even bringing it back to COVID nineteen, that's like that reminds me so much of like you know the kind of chest. Beating, you know, over, you know, should we be running his uh, coronavirus task force PR, you know, every day? And it's like, you probably never should have been, but, you know, it was just too tantalizing to like be able to turn on the camera for two hours and get all that content or that, you know, get those eyeballs on your network. And it's not just get those eyeballs on your net on your network, then the rest of your evening is programmed for you. you your producers don't have to research anything. Because all you have to do is go with your usual cast of characters, right? They're all scheduled, slotted to come on. Like if you know they're going to be the four people you've already slotted to come on and talk to Brian Williams with his end of the day wrap up show. And what are you going to do? You're going to spend an hour pouring over, rehashing, and and vivisecting his performance in the presser. And so. The, the news the news programming is programmed for you by him it's it's like it's a turnkey operation and you know I you know, Trump is so he's so emblematic in so many ways I feel like where we are with the intersection of politics and culture and social media is that um, we're trying to fill this is going to look like I don't mean to be a little philosophical here, but I think, you know, we're two. Let me start this way. It'll be almost three summers ago this summer that the head of Ikea was at a conference talking about long term business prospects. And he said, you know, I think we've reached peak stuff. And when I heard that, I said, wow, that's amazing. I mean, whether or not he's right, that's an amazing idea to think of that advanced consumer-driven capitalist cultures have gotten to a point of malaise because we've been oversaturated with plastic junk that we buy very easily with other plastic junk, the other plastic junk being credit cards. And it feels like there's this crisis of meaning that we have tried to fill with consumption for a long, long time. 
And then social media came along and gave us the opportunity to fill that hole with micro-celebrity. And, and, tr and if there's an inherent sort of narcissism, and I admit, look, I'm on social media, I'm posting all day long, but I'm not posting pictures of the meals that I'm eating. I'm not posting pictures of myself or my beautiful family or this incredible vacation I'm on or look at how shiny my car is after I waxed it. And oh, by the way, do you see what model and make car I have? I'm not, but there's still, there's an inherent narcissism in what I'm doing, right? I'm, Hey, I'm collecting things and I've got to take on the news and I want you to see it and I'm posting it and hope you like it. So I'm not absolving myself of this, but there is such an inherent narcissism in the way that we're trying to attain some level of satisfaction to mitigate for the fact that the economics system and the socioeconomic system we found ourselves in is not generating the one return that everybody's looking for, which is satisfaction and happiness. And so, so we're filling it with this, this micro-celebrity, and Donald Trump is just the macro version of this this sort of self-obsessed, navel-gazing media, social media environment we found ourselves in. He's actually the avatar of it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it definitely feels like the end of something. And I think that's part of what this podcast is, trying to put a finger on what that is. Um, you have an interesting perspective because you're by far, out of everybody I know, uh, the largest glutton for punishment in the sense that <laughs> you, you watch all the rallies, all the Trump rallies, you watch all the coronavirus briefings uh, from beginning to end, and uh, God bless you for it. I couldn't do it. Like, what? what's your kind of take on the Trump phenomenon and as it's as it's kind of like coming head to head with the pandemic phenomenon? Well... I think this is actually the first time in a long time that his ability to self-destruct is not being actively interfered with by his opponents. That's one thing. You know, I was a I criticized impeachment as one of the great strategic blunders I've seen in, uh, in my life politically. I mean, this puts Susan you know, Estridge putting Mike Dukakis in a tank to drive around like a bobblehead that you know, puts that to shame because that was a pretty big blunder. Um, you know, I think it's it's fascinating because it's he's it's basically just here's the mic and just talk and, and you get out of his way. And I think if he talks long enough, it actually he starts it goes from diminishing returns to actually him eroding um his his one thing that he wants and that's his popularity more than anything um and i don't think that we figured out what what coronavirus covid19 means yet you know so that's that's going to play out i mean there are some culture war things coming up but i think that those are ginned up for political purposes obviously and I don't, you know, the the poll that really registered with me last week was the, I think it was a USA Today poll, eight of ten, I believe USA Today, but you know, folks, I look at a lot of polls, um, I I can dig it up because it was on the rundown, um, but eight of ten Americans were supported the continuation of the lockdown, so that tells you that every that by and large the mass of the of Americans in the aggregate, they feel like okay, you know, we're we're on board with doing this. We're not clamoring to go get our hair cut yet to the point at which we want to risk our lives. But I think we're also getting to a point at which, okay, it's 55,000 deaths. It's going to be 65, maybe in, in a month, 60, 65,000 deaths. And then you start going, okay, well, statistically speaking, you know, the things that people were saying early on to open up the economy, those things may start to register a little bit as, the, as we start getting into, the, into June and people start saying, well, you know, deaths aren't spiking by 5,000 a day or even a week. And if they haven't spiked by 5,000 in a month, let's get back to our lives. But the question is, what lives are we getting back to? The lives in which 
you had a president who said this is the greatest economy in the history of mankind, but 46%, 47% of Americans couldn't pay a $400 surprise uh, auto repair bill in a given month. Uh, one where uh, record credit card debt keeps mounting every quarter, which is saying a lot because Americans went into record, record credit card debt in the months and years leading up to the 2018 crash, and they were they did a lot of record credit card debt at the end of the 90s before the tech crash. Are, is it, are we just want to buy more? Do we just want more? Is that it? We just want more plastic stuff. We just want to keep replacing the plastic stuff that we have, that that broke. Because this is kind of the 21st century, and there's no idea or vision of where mankind is going as a, as a civilization, as species, or where even many individual nations are going, apart from those nations that are embracing this new form of right-wing populism, which, based on the thing that I did before I went into television, which was be a student of the history of fascism, I find really interesting because those are the other echoes that I'm hearing and seeing is that, you know, for me, what fascism was more than anything, and there's the Marxist approach to fascism, and then I had a my own way of looking at fascism, which was not to look solely at it from a materialistic, historical Marxist analysis point of view. But I think that much of what fascism was trying to deal with was a crisis of meaning and that crisis of meaning in the 1920s and 30s after the Great War, the war to end all wars, the lost generation, and then the Great Depression that came after that, that was not just the United States, which was global. And the, the intensity of the Depression in Russia, I mean, excuse me, in Germany was was significant, where you needed, you know, uh, uh, you know, 10 million Deutschmarks just to buy a loaf of bread, people with wheelbarrows full of Deutschmarks to go to the, the bakery with the inflation that crisis of meaning, I think, is still going to be there. And in a way, Donald Trump was a was his, was him, himself as a political phenomenon, a detour from or a distraction from the crisis of meaning that has been building within us over the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, I think that's a really profound point. Um, and then, not to get all Steve Bannon on you, but... The, the fact of the matter is, like, our political lives have been dictated by pretty much the baby boomers, you know, since, you know, the Clinton era. And they're, they can't lead much longer because they can't live much longer. Um, like, what do you think is going to – I mean, so change has to happen, you know, it's just mathematically it has to happen at some point. And I don't know what – what we're looking to, who we're looking to as leaders or who we're looking at for meaning, you know, once this generation passes on. I am, uh, I'm befuddled. I think probably I'm a Gen Xer, so I don't, you know, I don't care. People know how old I am. I was born in 1969 and I was born about a, a month before Altamont, about 30 miles from Altamont. And I've always personally put that as part of my story, right? Is that I was born right as the, right basically on the eve of the Hells Angels beating the living hell out of the peace and love generation to kind of signal it's over, right? You know, we got the pull cues. Peace and love is over. This is the end of the 60s. Some people say it's also the Manson thing is, you know, a, a end point for the 60s, but they're both about the same time. And both communicating kind of the same message in their own way. And so I'm right at that sort of early leading part of uh, the Gen X movement, Gen X generation. It's not, that's the thing. I said movement. It's no movement. No, no. That's, the, it's, that's the problem. There is no movement. There is no Gen X movement, right? Yeah. We're, we're latchkey kids and we're sitting at home. And I, look, I love my generation and I'm, I'm – I'm not ashamed of being a Gen Xer, but a couple of things strike me. You know, I look at a lot. You said I watched the, the rallies. I've looked at a lot of rallies, and I see a lot of my peers there. Mm -hmm. You know, there are baby boomers there, but when I look at the age, I like – because sometimes, you know, it's hard for me to look at myself and say, oh, yeah, you know, you're 50. <laughs> and the, the people around you are 50. Those are your peers now, my friend. Um, the, a lot of those people are 50. 
a lot of Gen Xers. And, uh, you know, we're not the woke, enlightened generation that uh, Gen Z is. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think, you know, one of the attractions to people like AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Gen Z from some Gen Gen Xers is that it's like, it's like we're saying, hey, kids, we can't do it. <laughs> we're we're immobilized. We're too busy collecting Mego dolls that we once owned when we were kids, you know, and right. we're too busy geeking out on Star Wars and just being upset that Star Wars will never be as good as it was because that was a child thing that you had in the, you know, Star Wars came out in 1970 when I was like nine. Anyway, so but we all obsess on on our we're, we're so nostalgic as Gen Xers, which I think I guess is also a little bit understandable because one thing about Gen X is that we're the last generation to have any idea of what the American dream America actually once was. We saw it. And a lot of us, most of us, saw it die before our eyes and saw it being taken out of our reach in real time. And this is something that maybe millennials get a hint of, but Gen Z has no idea of that America. Mm-mm. You know, I'm uh, 75, so I'm at the... You're right in the middle. Right, right. And, um, you know, and I remember very clearly, like, you know, the second grade or whatever, going to school, third grade, and, like, one day, none of the f- fathers had jobs, <laughs> you know? And, um, yeah, and there, yeah, it's like, you know definitely have a vision of America that's owes something to the prosperity of the, the baby boom generation. And, um, and I always kind of saw the, uh, the kind of slacker thing is like really a, a protective bubble. (laughs) You know, it was just like, I, I, uh, I just read a book that, uh, are you serious? The co-founder of Mondo 2000 is, uh, just finished writing a book. Hopefully it comes out one of these days. And, um, and he talks about kind of like the missteps of the early cyber culture and, you know, in the eighties and the nineties. And, you know, at the time, I think magazines like Mondo and, uh, well, there was only one Mondo, there was no magazines like it, but you know, those thinkers were really kind of pushing like almost a crypto libertarian point of view. And, I don't think it was because they were secret libertarians. I think it's because, like, it was the end of history, and nobody saw, like, a vision for the future. Everybody was, like, more concerned with kind of analyzing the present and, you know, this, like, neoliberal consumer capitalism was what we're in. We're wallowing in it. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to have to be the the Generation Z who aren't stuck in this way of thinking, who can kind of envision something bolder and and hopefully better. Because in the 80s, you remember this, we were still worried about nuclear annihilation. You know, like one of my earliest memories is like some teacher, I don't know why she told a bunch of seven-year-olds this, but she said something about nuclear war and like, I was like for for months I was like every night it was like I couldn't sleep you know I was freaked out and you know and it was so real I think they said 1985 was like the closest that um that we came to war with Russia or Soviet Union and um you know people think about like ducking cover in the 50s and the 60s and stuff but it was it was hot you know it was scary and it was very real possibility right up to the end. Right up to the end. I grew up in Livermore, which is home to Lawrence Livermore Nuclear Laboratory, one of the two or three, three, Oak Ridge and Sandia. It's actually a partner of Sandia, leading nuclear weapons research facilities in the world. That was right down the street. Yeah, so that was like the, the, uh, the local business, the local industry. It was that and uh, ranching and winemaking. So um, that's that's what Livermore was a small town at. Now now it's a giant a gigantic bedroom community for for Silicon Valley. All of the valley is now. When I grew up, it was a lot of farming and ranching. So um, it was a weird time. But to be a, like a you know anti Reagan 
new waver punk kind of kid nuclear war that was kind of my milieu growing up in livermore so it was always ever present to, to me and it was ever present in our community let alone things like a, a famous if you if you're listening to this you haven't heard of it look up a, a show called a, a made for tv movie called the day after highly controversial movie which envisioned a nuclear exchange with russia and the and the literal fallout biological human debt cost fallout of a nuclear war i believe it aired on abc lots of fanfare and it was a big deal it was a big deal hello i'm john Cullum. in this evening's abc theater presentation of the day after i play a father in a typical american family who experienced the catastrophic events of a full-scale nuclear war before the movie begins we would like to caution parents about the graphic depiction of nuclear explosions and their devastating effects. The emotional impact of these scenes may be unusually disturbing, and we are therefore recommending that very young children not be permitted to watch. You know, I uh, that also gave me nightmares as a child. And um, yeah. I looked it up uh, a few years ago. I, th I think I've just found it on YouTube. Somebody uploaded the whole thing, and I kind of watched it for, like, kids' value or something. It is still frightening as hell. Like, See? yeah, Man. yeah. Well, luckily, and I say that somewhat ironically, more completely ironically. Um, why modulate? No, I'm being ironic. Um, 9/11 came along and gave us a momentary taste of what it, what, what actual meaning might be. Right? We all kind of, oh, we're all to in this together and. The world is all with us, and it all felt like, wow, we just realized what's important, you know? we, Our families and our loved ones and the fact that it can be all taken away, and there was just a momentary feeling of, of, wow, maybe we can like come together and be something, which is amazing because the underlying acrimony that, that we think of as part of today's politics was really blossoming throughout that 90s too that's another cartoon aspect where politics became a cartoon driven by the Lewinsky thing and all of the Clinton scandals and the you know the the, the Clinton uh, death list and all that stuff the murder list all the things that were going on in the 90s the scafe Richard Mellon scafe and the American spectator driving politics and all this kind of stuff um, we had a you know we had that going into 9/11 we had a president who was largely seen as illegitimate by half of the population, a guy who was being egged and had vegetables thrown at him during his post-inauguration walk from the Capitol to the White House. You know, I, I was there. It was so funny. It was like the limo was driving, you know, down Pennsylvania Avenue, and then it hit like the, you know, where all the viewers were. Right. And then, like, someone hit, the, you know, they hit the gas, and then all of a sudden, eggs <laughs> flying <laughs> from all over the place. And I was, and then, like, and then the the skies opened up, and it just drenched rain on everybody. I was like, this is going to be a rough four years. Yeah, little and did I know? Little did you know? But that nine eleven kind of turned that off for a minute, because that's what the American people will do. And then something happens, they go, "Okay, you're the president." Trump actually experienced two weeks of that, and he's pissed that away just by running his mouth yeah he trumped it up trumped it up but i i hope that gen z has an answer for the crisis of meaning maybe it's something that's that's post-consumer capitalism look we're always going to have some kind of in our lifetimes we're going to have some we're going to experience capitalism on some level entrepreneurialism markets are going to be there but modulating those and controlling those and directing those towards something that's not just Purchasing for the sake of purchasing, um, in spite of reaching peak stuff, where the only thing that's really left for big corporations that are all giving, you know, everybody's reporting their earnings this week. The market is at was up today. It's at twenty four thousand. I'm telling you, the market is worth about twelve or thirteen, right? So that's I'm seeing twelve thousand. What? 12,000 points of fat in the market. Netflix is not worth $1,100 a share. In what world? But the willing suspension of disbelief is itself this powerful indicator of the crisis of meaning that has 
uh, has us as a society in its grip and we don't know how to slip out of it. If Gen Z can do it, more power to you because I guarantee you, as you uh, aptly put it, Gen X is most likely to spend the rest of its time uh, in a, uh, trying to stay cocooned in a bubble. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you about the premise of you know this show, um, Failed State Update. If we don't live in a failed state, it sure seems like it. Um, do you agree with that premise? Do you think that the United States is hollowed out? Or do you see a few more good years left? I see a patchwork. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, you know, I guess I'm biased. I was born in California, although I was at a couple of days old, taken to live in New Jersey for a while, uh, but ended up back in California to live most of my life. And I'm pretty impressed with how California has handled it. Um, look at Mike DeWine in Ohio. Done a pretty good job. I think what's being hollowed out is the is the common good. The idea of the common good. And really when we think of states and states that are succeeding and states that are failing, failed states have a number of different metrics to them and things like, you know, do services work? Do you, is there functional rule of law? Is the court system working? All of those things. And so you can look at a lot of failed states. Libya, right? Failed state. At Yemen, failed state. <clears throat> but for us, I think the, the failed state moniker really has to do with our inability to participate in the common good. And, you know, here in the Bay Area and in California, an idea of the common good was was implemented and people have participated in it. And it's been quite successful, actually. Look at the number of deaths in California. There are places where the common good doesn't really seem to register, right? Like Florida. And 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 in the Trump White House, the Trump White House is not based on an idea of the common good. As a matter of fact, the Trump White House is the culmination of a much longer project of which the, the revolutionary fulcrum point was the Reagan election, the Reagan revolution election of 1980. But it's really the long process of, of, of hard right conservative activists to undo the FDR version of America. The Keynesian economic version of America that FDR implemented with a social safety net and regular Keynesianism, not just military Keynesianism, where you had a system that put money in the hands of middle and working class people who would spend money and drive the market, as opposed to supply side economic, which is let's put all the money in the hands of the financial elites who may not be interested in building building things or making things that people want to buy, but really just want to get involved in marginal forex trading and just go out on the market and get basically turn the economy into a digital transfer from one screen to another where you're not really even making things because you're you're betting you're doing short selling on on Brazilian oil futures, you know, and whatever. So are we a failed state? Kinda. I mean, because without that idea of the common good in play, at the at the federal level, the federal federal government then just becomes kind of an afterthought. And I think that that's actually you mentioned Steve Bannon. That was part of Steve Bannon's war on the administrative state, which was what we want to do is we want to bust apart those lingering elements of the common good that are built into the regulatory processes that the bureaucracies engage in to try and modulate the greed and avarice that drives many of the aspects of the economy. Those are individual-driven, uh, individual individualistic-driven ventures, not common good-driven ventures, and unleashing the ability of individuals to exploit systems without any check balance or punishment is kind of what rules supreme in the in the in the executive branch right now so on that level i would say yes we are a failed state but you know what i drove to livermore on a working road and i didn't have a helicopter flying overhead that could kill me 
I'm not in Somalia where the United States just admitted, yeah, we did kill some civilians in that bombing. And, you know, even though we said we didn't, I mean, that's why I kind of, I'm hesitant. I mean, I think my historical Gen Xer used to wear anti-Reagan t-shirts, you know, punk new wave kid wants to say, yeah, this, this place is going to hell in a handbasket. But on some level, I think we overlook how fortunate we are that we are not as failed as we could be and how much actually still does work and how much opportunity there is to work with what we have. And that's it, the second episode of the Failed State Update. I'm your host, Joseph L. Flatley. Uh, This episode was recorded on and around May 2nd, 2020. If you'd like to get in touch with me, either check out my website, LennyFlatley.net, or hit me up through Twitter, at LennyFlatley.